Hey there, my name's Oshin Lunny and this is Audio Talks, presented to you by Harman. And this episode, we're going to explore the overlap between the live music scene and sustainability. Do you want to know about the great eco-friendly initiatives within the live music industry that are making a real difference? And do you want to make a difference? I do hope so, because I'm thrilled to be joined today by three sustainability superstars. We have Chiara Badiali from Julie's Bicycle. Hey, Chiara. Hi there. We have Claire O'Neill, the co-founder and director at A Greener Festival. Hey, Claire. Hello. And we have Jonas Skelbo, the founder of Velo Concerts. Welcome, Jonas. Thank you. Hi. Okay, before we get into looking at the problem, looking at the solution and looking at the wonderful things that are possible within our industry that we know and love, uh, I think it would be great just to get a bit of a flavor of how you came to be working where you are at this brilliant overlap between live music and sustainability. So let's start with yourself, Chiara. What was your path to Julie's Bicycle and why did you get involved? So my path to Julie's Bicycle is that I wanted to save the wolves when I was a kid. Um, but I, um, But I fell in love with live music uh, somewhere along the way. So I started off studying science, uh, but then started working in live music. Uh, and then eventually I found Julie's Bicycle uh, and it brought together everything that I was really passionate about in life. Um, so Julie's Bicycle was uh, founded about 15 years ago from within the UK music industry as a charity to help the industry address uh, its climate impacts uh, and really transform the way that we're working uh, from the inside out in a way that doesn't just put the responsibility on the artists alone, but actually helps bring all the different pieces of the sector together. That's a wonderful outcome of your passion for wolves and live music. That's like the, the perfect Venn diagram right there. And Claire, talk to us a bit about a Greener Festival and how you came to co-found it and what's happening now. Yeah, I guess that I came off my uh, passion for parties. <laughs> and um, Nice. <laughs> I was going to a lot of <laughs> parties in the woods, whereas discovering um, all of these alternative ways of living and uh, lots of solar-powered sound systems and organic food and um, just generally communities looking after the environment, being really passionate about caring for it. And at the same time, I'd gone to do a music industry management degree because I was always really interested in live music equally and also just music in general. And then I thought, well, how can I take this kind of alternative culture ideal and bring it into the business of the music industry, which wasn't really... um, doing a great deal at that point in time. There was the counterculture working on it for sure, stuff happening in festivals, Mm. but not the mainstream industry or the mainstream festivals. Um, So my lecturer, Ben Chalice, who's a lawyer for Glastonbury, also legal counsel for Europe, the European Festival Association, read my dissertation that was about festivals and the environment and and said, what are you going to do with this when you leave uni? I thought, well, put it on a shelf to gather dust, the same as every dissertation. And uh, and then he said, well, why don't we turn it into a website? So my classmate um, at the time, Luke Westbury, knew how to make websites. And so he did that. And then festivals all around the world started to get in touch. And um, and we decided to start with just a little checklist for festivals about what they were doing um, for the start of the Greener Festival Award, which I think the first year was in maybe 2007. Wow. The research started in 2005. And then that just snowballed over the years. I mean, we all work in the industry, but the university kept repeating the research every um, two years up until 2012, I think. It's been repeated again this year. Um, but it evolved into a really detailed um, certification process where we work from the scale of Glastonbury to small local events um, completely internationally. Um, and we do the Green Events and Innovations Conference, uh, which is in its 13th year, bringing together the whole industry. We've got training programs again internationally. Um, and now we work with arenas, tours, agents and sports events as well um, to try and bring uh, sustainability essentially to the forefront. Um, and in the meantime, I also have been became an aerialist and working with Arcadia Spectacular, do a lot of um, international tours with them, um, as well as the Association for Independent Festivals I managed for six years. So that's as well as the work in the industry has given a bit of an insight on how it all works, as well as how it can be more sustainable. So that's the nutshell. 
Fantastic. Again, a perfect Venn diagram of all your passions all at once. It's absolutely brilliant. And uh, we will, of course, be linking to Judy's Bicycle Agrina Festival and Velo concerts in the show notes. So folks, if you're listening, if you're inspired, please do get involved. Speaking of which, Jonas, talk to us about Velo concerts. It's such a brilliant, unique idea. When did you have this idea and how did you make it a reality? What, what's your journey been like? Well, my journey was starting back in 2017 with the idea of making concerts on a bicycle. Myself, I've been active as a guitarist for the last more or less 20 years, traveling around with my concerts, mainly on a plane or by car or by bus, which was actually posing a problem for me as I privately really, really tried to think very sustainable and act privately to be a good earth citizen, so to say. Yeah. Well, then I started with that idea uh, in 2017, and, and in 2019, I got together with a designer from Austria, Jakob Ilera, and we built the first stage, a bike stage that's, so to say, unfold from, from a cargo bike. Wow. And my idea was really to, to take the music out of the concert halls of the normal venues and make music or events possible anytime and anywhere. I wanted a completely independent state, so to say. So it's all battery powered and can basically unfold anywhere you can reach by bike. Fantastic. For me, it was really a question of, of making a difference myself also, because I I've also have the urge of saying that we as artists, we have also responsibility to inspire other people. And, and therefore, also I wanted to rethink the way how we can produce events. Yeah, that, that's, that's wonderful. So the, the idea with Velo concerts is that like, everything fits onto the bike and you just turn up there and you've got the amplifiers and yes. you've got the batteries and you've got, the, you can just turn up and, and play. Is that, is that Ex- it? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you wow. have to imagine, we basically have a pretty normal cargo bike that carries the stage as a kind of a box. And in the box, we actually have the entire equipment. So wow. PA and, and also instrument, the entire mixer and, and microphones and all equipment that is needed for a normal stage. The stage basically unfolds within two minutes and then it's just a question of putting the band on on the stage and and the concert is going on, so to say. Outstanding. Okay. It's obviously slightly difficult to visualize this on the podcast, but uh, as I said, (laughs) there's a link to Velo Concerts in the podcast notes. You know, we will be sharing that and please do check it out because it's fascinating, the whole structure and the engineering behind it. It's a brilliant invention. And, yeah. you know, talk about manifesting an idea. It's something that all of you have done in, in different ways. If you've had this passion and this purpose within you and you've really made it happen in three very unique ways, which is fantastically inspiring, I think. So let's come back to something that you mentioned there, Claire. Uh, you had a connection with some of the folks at Glastonbury when you were writing your paper. And... Glastonbury, Woodstock back in 69, these are absolutely seminal events in live music, but they're also born out of a very open and free spirit. I don't know if you would say that it's a kind of hippie approach to life, but there's something very open and earth-friendly and very particular about the ethos behind it. Do you think that this original heritage of the festivals has kind of come back to the fore in terms of how people are relating to live music? Yeah, I think definitely. And um, and you touched upon something there, which which actually I've said for many years when I've described the journey of a greener festival about um, trying to make sustainability something that isn't just a hippie ideal. Um, yes. And uh, whereas actually what we can see now is that the hippies were right all along and just covertly <laughs> they've cloaked themselves in some kind of business attire and managed to infiltrate <laughs> the masses. <laughs> but as far Fantastic. as as far as the... I mean, going back to what the, that kind of freedom and purpose of the mm. of those archetypal festivals are, it goes even further back than that because what was it that really resonated with people who went to Woodstock or who went to Glastonbury in the early years? Um, mm. And what is it that we as humans have done throughout history in order to maintain a connection between each other, to ourselves, Mm. to the land that we live on and the water that we need for life and the air that we breathe. And it's that Mm. coming together um, in celebration and around campfires. And and it's part of of how we've evolved as a species and as a part of nature. And it's something that we've really become quite um, or certainly became very disconnected from as we 
retreated more and more into our own individual separate dwellings or as we suppressed a lot of the um, natural aspects of ourselves, such as things like sexuality or emotion or any kind of ritual and ceremony, you know, over centuries, it's been really beaten out of us and treated as something that's shameful and um, to be oppressed, essentially. Mm. And then add on to that things like central heating and all the things that take us away from our connection with natural cycles um, or like having any kind of food from anywhere in the world at any time there's something quite instinctual and basic about then coming back together with the likes of Woodstock and Glastonbury and and coming back to the hippies. I mean, there's definitely um, a lot of the influence of psychedelics that helped to open people up at that time because of the fact that it was melting away that kind of scaffolding of this frame of perception that we started to apply onto the world and how we perceive how we should be and how we're very separate to nature and it's something to be controlled and dominated Mm -hmm. we were kind of facilitated in a way to let that melt away and um and that meant that the hippies (laughs) were able to intuitively fall in love with the land, fall in love with each other and really connect to this deep sense of we're on the wrong path here and we need to kind of make this reconnection and heal um, all of the problems. It's just taken 60 years then for the media and politics to catch up and look at it from another perspective where it's like, oh, actually, we're running out of all of our stuff now. So we better start uh, maybe changing what we're doing. Um, yes. so, um, yeah, that's my, uh, thoughts on the matter. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a child of the seventies myself and I have very fond memories of going to music festivals and, uh, sneaking into the Harry Krishna tent because they offered very nice free food, which was, uh, just a, an incredible Surely novelty that's at the, the time. Tent you never have to sneak into, aren't the doors always open? <laughs> <laughs> we always, we always felt that we were being a bit naughty because, you know, the tent was just full of adults and, you know, we were the only kids in there and we were obviously just going for the food. Mm. Um, but uh, that was, they were very kind and very sweet to us anyway. But uh, as you were talking there, you reminded me of this quote I love from the English philosopher Alan Watts. He said, we thought about life by analogy as a journey or a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at the end. The thing was to get to that end, but we missed the point along the whole way. It was a musical thing and you were supposed to sing or dance <laughs> while the music was being played. Yes. And I love that. I love that. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. And then um, just to come on to as well, like, um, I mean, Glastonbury specifically, but also some of the other pioneers in s- the sustainable event space, I suppose. Like when I came to do my dissertation, there were the likes of the Green Futures at Glastonbury and um, Big Green Gathering. And at the time there was oh, yeah. Kingston Green Fair. And, and so there were all of these amazing communities that have been doing so much and living and breathing this. And, and a lot of it is the traveller communities as well. Um, uh, who are the closest, really, I think, that we have here to our Indigenous communities because they live so closely with the land and the cycles of nature, like I mentioned before. But they were a real inspiration. And when I came to do the studies in 2005, what was lacking was something from an industry perspective or from the business or from academic, but the culture was already there. You know, so all that needed to be done was that to transition that culture into the framework of um, the business and the academia, which is very much present now. Fantastic. I mean, it sounds like that uh, research <clears throat> and the dissertation you did is, is something that, you know, people could go back to today and get inspired by. But presumably that's what's uh, kind of gone into a greener festival and, and your work since. Um, but, but one thing you mentioned there, Claire, um, was that. Uh, this has moved into more mainstream consciousness as things have started running out. And there's some absolutely heartbreaking statistic uh, around the number of crops we have left. Like we have 60 years of crops, if we're lucky, unless we actually adopt some kind of regenerative agriculture and treat our resources differently. Let's talk now about where we are. Uh, I mean, this stuff is coming into people's consciousness. We realize it's important. We realize it's urgent. It's something we can't ignore anymore. A decade of action has been declared, although we've kind of been distracted from it between one thing and the other at the beginning of this decade. What do we need to do individually and as an industry to meet the challenge of this, you know, environmental disaster that's facing us? Chiara? I think in some ways we've only left ourselves a decade of really intense action 
because we've delayed action for quite a while. Um, yeah, I think what, one of the statistics that always gets me is that about half of all the emissions that we've kind of put in the atmosphere, you know, since the industrial age, we've actually put up there in the last 30 years. So these changes that we are making to the physical composition of our atmosphere, we can actually measure on a cultural timescale. Like mm. in the time since Rick Astley put out, never going to give you up, like half of the emissions we've emitted since then. On the one hand, that's really frightening. But on the other hand, I think it also helps put into perspective, like how quickly things have changed. Uh, and that actually, yeah. that means it can be really possible to make change very, very quickly again. And that sort of 10 years of action, it, it really came from the last big scientific summary that a thing called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, put out, mm. which is like all the scientists in the world are tasked to put out a summary of like, what do we know about climate change? And they went, okay, Things have been getting worse. Uh, we're still headed in the wrong direction. If we want to have a chance uh, at sort of bending that emissions curve, we're going to have to have our emissions every 10 years from here on out, which means that the decisions that we make in the next decade around what we invest in and the kind of world we want to build is sort of going to set the course for our life on this planet for the next thousand years, more or less. Wow. And again, you can look at that as daunting, but you can also look at that as kind of, we have through an accident of time been put into a position where the decisions that we make are going to have these far reaching consequences. And actually in some ways, that's a gift in terms of the world that we can build out of that. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well said. And you mentioned there that a lot can change in a very small space of time. And with the undeniable human cost and a tragedy of COVID-19, we have also seen the ability of people to come together to make huge things happen that we would have thought unthinkable even a couple of years ago. Do we think there are any opportunities around sustainability as we come out of this time of COVID-19? And is there anything that we should be looking at doing differently and looking at doing better? It's about maintaining that energy and momentum. All of that energy happens in cycles as well. So when Julie's Bicycle was first formed 15 years ago, I think was another moment where there was a lot of energy for climate action in sort of 2007, mm. 2008, that the UK was about to bring in the world first sort of UK Climate Change Act. Um, suddenly there was this sense of, oh, wow, we have to do something about this. And it did bring all the parts of the UK music industry together at the time. Our first piece of work was trying to put a carbon footprint on the UK music industry to go, okay, where do we need to focus our attention? And we've learned so much in the time since in those 10, 15 years. And sometimes now it feels like we're having some of those same conversations again with sort of the new generation of music people that has come to the issue and gone, oh, wow, oh my God, what do we do? You know, what is the carbon footprint of the music industry? And it's like, okay, we have now got these 10, 15 years of experience. We know the direction of travel. And so that's, again, that's exciting is whether we can keep in our heads the energy of this moment of pause and this moment where people have taken a breath and gone, okay, mm. actually, I do want, like, what does my work stand for? What does my company yeah. stand for? What do I want to achieve? And that goes across the board from how we power our venues to as we start touring again, thinking very carefully about how we route those tours, which trips we do take, which ones we don't take, how we want to rebuild in terms of the skills and the people that we're bringing into the industry. Mm, yeah, very good point. Thank you. And uh, coming back to yourself, Claire, I mean, I know that you speak at a lot of conferences about the work of a greener festival. Um, what have some of your recent conversations been like? How is the music industry responding to something that, you know, you, uh, you know, all of you on the podcast have been talking about for many, many years? What's the reaction today in like, you know, the past 12 months to the conversations you're having, Claire? I feel like the conversations have become much more human um, mm. over the last 12 months and there's more people, um, I think, really feeling it rather than just ticking boxes mm. because something that's happened for many during the pandemic or during this period of colossal change 
um, is that people have had a chance to actually change on a personal level or to really reflect and be almost um, forced to sit with their emotions and mm. to step back from the kind of macho competitive posturing that we're normally all caught up in in the industry of bigger, louder, faster, better than yours, more profit, whatever it might be which to be fair is the modus operandi. <laughs> and also I think it's been a wonderful window into the fact that previously we w felt like we were on this huge machine that was just careering in some direction. We all pretty much knew it wasn't the right direction, but the machine was so big and powerful and alluring that no one dared stop it. And then COVID came along and ground everything to a halt. All of the flights around the world were grounded. Every tour in the world was cancelled. Every festival in the world was cancelled. Completely unimaginable previously. So now anything else yeah. that we thought was unimaginable to change or impossible to change, we realised, no, nothing is impossible and nothing is infallible and we can and we must change things quite radically. I mean, we can now see that actually maybe it wasn't even the right vehicle, let alone the right direction, um, and we can change things quite fundamentally. And one of those things that really does need to change, and still this conversation isn't coming to the surface as much as it should be, but it's it's getting mm. there, is, is how the money flows through the industry. Because mm. the money at the end of the day is still what drives most action. Ultimately, we need yeah. to be putting the people and planet at the centre of all of our business decisions and all of the decisions that we make going forwards or else what's the point? Like if it's just profit, then it's just depletive at the end of the day. But mm. if we are looking at to take a music industry example, so you want to take an, an artist exclusively and have an exclusion zone of a certain period of time in a certain geographical area. So you're going to pay a huge amount more for that artist in order to get the numbers that you need at that scale of event and compete, essentially. This means mm. that, A, huge amounts of money are going then in one direction, which leaves little value for elsewhere. B, there's more audiences having to travel from further away See, the artists and the production are having to travel further distances, making their tour less sustainable. So it's, it's things like this that need to be looked at and also looking at, OK, well, where is the money of the industry held as well? Are we ultimately investing into more fossil fuels and more deforestation or are we making sure that our investments and our money and the application of our energy and our time is doing something that's creating the future that we want to have? So, um I think that the conversations have really matured. There's obviously a fear and a hesitance and a feeling in some cases of uh, being weaker because of having lost a lot of money and a lot of people. But at the same mm. time, um, I think that more it's made people feel stronger and more empowered at just how much change is completely possible. It's also highlighted, I think, some of the, the vulnerabilities of some of the current business models that that, you know, don't mm. price in kind of the full environmental cost like our current touring models and, and like those exclusion zones, particularly for artists. And, and I'll always remember this. Edwin from Falls did a, a podcast around climate change a little while ago. And, and he said, you know, sometimes I feel so overwhelmed by climate change that I don't want to tour again, but I'm just not quite ready to walk away from my job yet. Um, because actually yes. that's what it would mean at this moment in time for a musician at sort of that top level to stop touring, it would be walking away from their job. And so mm. there is a, that is a challenge to the industry is reimagining some of our business models in a way where, um, you know, not touring at that scale doesn't mean just giving up your career as mm. sort of how do we shape mm. careers differently. Mm, exactly. That was for me also really one of the points. I mean, I was touring quite a lot. I had a time where I was basically every second week sitting in a plane and there I wanted to take initiative myself and change that by my own means. Like I, I tried to, to buy my food locally. I also then wanted to take this, the step to produce my concerts more locally with a, with a format where I basically drive out with the concerts on a bike. Mm. And I've seen that it's that it's also really resonating within the industry, also on an international level. I mean, we are currently setting up the the first bikes also in in Switzerland and Germany and and from all over the world to get contacts who want to set up Velo concerts in their places. No, mm. 
Nice. And Jonas, just, you know, we have a, a fair few listeners who are very much into their gear and, you know, they're kind of hi-fi and they like to know what's going where. Talk to us a bit about the actual kit that's on the bike. What makes the sound happen? I mean, basically, I was a guitarist for, for many years and was always caring a lot about the sound. I have a career as a mm. classical guitarist, but likewise also as a rock guitarist. And for me, it was important that, okay, I want to produce my events or a format on a bicycle, but I don't want to make compromises on the sound. And, sure. and therefore, I think something really has happened for the last, let's say, five, ten years the equipment that is possible to to really to reproduce the the good sound of the old stacks that we actually put amp simulations on just a stump pedal and uh-huh. directly into the the PAs we we have a very good collaboration with JPL nice. but actually that only started because I thought this was the best speakers for our format because they mm. all battery powered and and they sound really great so I also in, in bigger professional productions, also on, on bigger stages, actually, I, I really like also to just to grab these speakers with for me as, as a guitar speaker, so to say, with just a, a small pedal in front and, and, and it sounds actually really awesome. I mean, I think it's very important to, to not forget about the, the good sound because that's also what inspires us all musicians mm. or listeners. It has to inspire you as a musician, but it also really has to go to the bone, the great sound in front of the stage, no? And some audience, I remember one concert we had last year and they were saying it, it, it's like having a, a festival in a postcard format. <laughs> there and, and, oh. It's also for me very, very familiar, like a family format. We can really mm. take our kids with to the big concerts. We had some um, very good rock band from Austria playing in the stage and with the pregnant wife in front of the, the speakers. And oh. it's not this uh, 140 dBs where, where you sure. cannot stand to be in front of the speakers, but it's, it's a really great sound. And a full sound. Where have Velo concerts taken place now? You, you mentioned that you're kind of expanding, uh, you know, there's going to be more bikes in more countries and yeah. there's going to be more concerts. But what are some of the venues that have been involved with your work so far? Over the last two years, I mean, we've played like more or less 100 events with all kind of music, rap music, rock, classical concerts, and all centered around Vienna, mm-hmm. though as a reaction to the first lockdown in Austria, I decided that I wanted to bring out the music after the, the lockdown. So we had set a date for Velo Concerts tour where we toured the entire Austria. We went uh, 750 kilometers in, in one week with the bikes and played concerts every day. We were four musicians biking uh, all around Austria and meeting mm. musicians, jamming with musicians who are all happy to perform and, again and being on stage. Mm. These kind of Things I also would like to show that it's possible to really to make a tour in, in a sustainable way. So we had the entire production from musicians, from instruments. We had the cameraman biking, uh, hanging on my bike while he, he was filming. And it was, it was very interesting that it's actually logistically possible to bring this out also on, on a bigger scale or really a, a decent tour, so to say. Mm. Hey, maybe we'll see Foles doing a Velo Concerts tour one of these days. And that would be pretty cool. <laughs> they have my phone number on, on the homepage, so they will come to a call. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, now, now, Foles are a band I'm a big fan of. I think their uh, statements, particularly around... Uh, sustainability are are just fantastic. Their mm. their heart is really in the right place. Mm. So you're all working in different aspects of sustainability. Jonas, you've just you know shared with us a brilliant example of grabbing hold of that personal responsibility and saying I'm going to make this change in how I do live music. And you've built this whole thing, which is just amazing. Claire, what is the alternative? What's going to happen to live music if people just try and do business as usual and don't change anything and don't take sustainability into account? You know what's going to happen in five or ten years? I think there's a few things. I mean, first, the audience bit by bit will whittle away because Mm -hmm. people are waking up to the fact that they don't want to destroy everything that we have <laughs> finally yes um but also i was on a um i was on a panel at eurosonic in january this year with an um mep christianella from mm-hmm. um from germany and yeah. we were talking about um we were with music declares emergency as well and and a lot of that is about the industry calling out the governments to say you need to do more about climate change and yeah. um and what uh, dr christianella was saying was from the EU's perspective, industry should have heard the shot because 
the legislation is here. It's being enforced. It's coming. It's being strengthened. Um, it's being adopted into all nations. And if you have a festival or if you want a festival within the next 10 years, it's either sustainable or it doesn't exist. That's the choice wow. at the end of the day. So that was no wow. unclear terms. Um, and the, yeah. the legislation is coming. It is going to happen. And also we can see um, there's a real need actually to protect these cultural industries because we've seen with the pandemic that there's no hesitation for shutting it down if it's thought to be not in the public interest or um, like the governments won't bat an eyelid about shutting it down. Yeah. Sustainability, the issues, the topics around it are only going to become more and more and more intense over the coming decade. And if the cultural industries and the way that we do live music is seen as something that is not fitting with that, then it will be much more quickly shut down than any of probably our more polluting industries that have more influence at a government level. <laughs> so in order for us to survive, we simply need to get on board. But that's looking at it from a kind of a, a negative must-do perspective. And to say that it's a macho industry, I mean, that is only one part. And it's also a hugely inspiring, aspirational, incredible, creative, cultural <laughs> place. And that's why yeah. um, it's such an exciting opportunity. Why would you want to just do the same old, same old when there's <laughs> so much more wonderful, amazing, creative possibilities that can be done? Imagine how much more elated you'd be celebrating at a party where you know that actually you're making the world better and you're enhancing life uh, you're leaving a good legacy and you're doing something mm. amazing and incredible like that sounds like a much better party to me amen absolutely i chatted to a guy a little while ago who uh, works on the overlap of esg and investment and finance and he's an absolute genius a guy called tony fish and he said we all need to be better ancestors mm. we can't continue burning the earth behind us. That's what we've been doing up to this point. And we've run out of runway. That's it. We've we've reached the end. Things can be so much better, so much more in tune with nature, so much more regenerative for our world. And uh, yeah, I would much prefer to go to one of those festivals where you know you're making a positive <laughs> difference than the same old, same old, which from the sound of things, from, from your kind of inside tip there from an MEP, is just not on the cards anymore. Yeah. And uh, if festival owners are not already cognizant of this they really need to get their skates on or else they won't be in business mm. uh, quite soon so let's you know speaking of MEPs speaking of the role of governments and international organization do we think that the sustainable development goals from the UN are a framework that can be applied in a positive way to the music industry is there anything in particular that you see there uh, is there anything that you would recommend the folks listening make themselves aware of Kiara I mean the sustainable development goals I think what they are is a really powerful framework to remind us that our climate and our environmental action it, it has to be intersectional and it has to look at mm. justice as well we can't just look at environment and climate in isolation but I think it cuts both ways in that you can't take any of the other sustainable development goals and just look at those in isolation either without also understanding, you know, climate and environment. I think one of the things that the sustainable development goals do say is actually for us to have a chance at achieving any of these other goals and indicators around education, around women's rights, uh, mm. we have to tackle climate change um, because it multiplies all these other injustices as well. So that would be my starting point. But they can be super inspirational. Like sometimes one of the things that we do with people that we work with is we use them as kind of flashcards and we go, okay, you are this big venue arena. What would it look like if you looked at food poverty through a climate lens and as well, like what your organization does in this space? And people start coming up with the most brilliant ideas around you know, how you deal with, yeah, food poverty in your community, how you deal with food waste, things to think about when you're buying in food that you serve up. And it just starts unpicking some of these issues that can seem so complex into mm. things that are easier to imagine and sort of turn into really practical actions. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I went to a music festival in Portugal a few years ago called Nos Alive, and they were one of the first festivals to sign up with the uh, UN SDGs. And they had things like beer glasses, which I became you know quite familiar with over the couple of days. And they are biodegradable. So they're made not of plastic, but of corn, some kind of processed corn. And after a couple of years, they turn into compost. All these little things absolutely do add up. But uh, Claire, coming back to yourself, is there anything that you think should get more attention from the music industry that doesn't get attention at the moment? Hmm. Well, I think in a lot of the discussions that that are happening lately in relation to sustainability, it often comes boiled down to carbon. And I think that that's, that's a risk in some respects because carbon doesn't necessarily translate a lot of the underlying issues very well. Um, and it can there can be a tendency to lean towards those things that are easier to measure rather than those things that are a bit less tangible. Yeah. And that kind of, <laughs> not to go kind of too deep on it, but that's, that's a bit more, um, it's kind of reflective of the fundamental problem that we have, that we've been very much driven by kind of money and profit and gain and growth Mm. without holistically looking at what's happening on a kind of more holistic level, (laughs) you know, what's happening emotionally, what's happening to people, what's happening to the planet. And so you can see that reflected in some ways in the way that we're turning also our approach to sustainability into a calculation. Mm. But I think that the, the, one of the positives with the SDGs, I think is that it does give a bit of an international language across a very, very complex subject. And they were released quite a few years after the AGF certification materials have been made. And so we've been assessing on kind of all the things that the SDGs touch on already, but we retrospectively overlaid the SDG language onto some of our reports, just because when operating internationally, it's quite good to have that very visual representation of what those different sections mean. Mm. Um, But like Chiara said, it's really important to not just take one and run with it forsaking the others. Um, It needs to be a complete approach. And then, I mean, as far as elements being overlooked, when we started a greener festival, the perception, or certainly my perception, was the environment is what comes first because if we don't have fresh air clean water and food then there's no economy and there's no society anyway but then over the years I did come to see that actually it doesn't always necessarily come first because if you've got a dysfunctional society or if the economy is is badly structured then that adversely impacts the environment so they're all equally important and interlinked but on the environmental section i think that it's very easy for us to get caught up in um the minutia and and little mm-hmm. details that don't necessarily have a big impact and so we try as much as possible to kind of bring it to those bigger areas where you can really make a difference which is why measurement does become important because then you can see well okay where is the lion's share of our impact and how can we change our actions in order to improve that so for instance we know that travel and burning fossil fuels is a huge impact we know that burning fossil fuels for energy consumption is a huge impact and we know that industrial animal farming um, and agricultural techniques that encourage deforestation are a huge impact. So if we can change the way that we're traveling or all ideally on Velo concerts (laughs) and also (laughs) change what we're eating so that we're not causing deforestation. So largely that means just going plant-based because then we're not putting so many plants and water into animals in order to feed us. And then also just changing where we get our energy from and making sure that we're investing into or divesting, that's the right word, isn't yes. it, from yes. fossil fuels and and making sure that our governments do as well because we've got such a strength on a personal level in that respect. And then if we've got a business and an audience and a fan base or a brand, then we've got even more influence. And with that influence comes a massive responsibility. And it's important to not just get caught up in little details that don't have a huge impact, although they are good usually for getting headlines. <laughs> Yeah, those are words to live by, particularly, you know, the idea of voting with your knife and fork. Mm. I think that 
can be one of the most powerful things that, that you can do. And you can kind of make that decision on a daily basis, on a personal basis. It's incredibly powerful. Absolutely. This movement is embracing cutting edge technology, whether it's food or materials or storage of energy, all this kind of thing. Uh, and Jonas, I know that the Velo concert stuff is quite high tech. Talk to us a bit about some of the materials that you're using uh, to make these concerts happen on your bike. Yeah, I mean, basically one of the major things for us to, to make it possible was also to create a stage that is super light. So you have to imagine mm. that we have a five meter broad stage unfolding that in the lightest version, it's only 46 kilos. So you could basically just hold it in one hand and, and that would fit an entire rock band on, on the stage now. <laughs> what? And, and still we, I mean, in our testing, we put 2,600 kilos on the stage to, to make sure that it can hold enough uh, of rock and roll now. But, wow. but it's all very, very simple in, in the execution. But the technology behind is really coming directly from the aviation uh, industry. So it's, it's ultra light panels is made into this stage, which of course also makes it quite pricey in the production, but it's really also necessary to make these things possible. And, and still also we try to think of, okay, we use materials that can be recycled in all the ways. Also in the sustainable perspective, it's materials that are lasting for a very long time and it's not just something that you throw away tomorrow, you know. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would totally agree with you there. What did they say? Buy cheap, buy twice. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. invest in high quality stuff that lasts longer. I'm yeah. a great believer in that philosophy. Yeah. Folks listening to the podcast, they must have some questions about, you know, what can they do to make a difference either personally or professionally or via an industry body. Maybe they work in live music. Maybe they work in another area of the music industry. Maybe they just are music lovers and they like good audio and they, they want to know what to do next. Are there any recommendations that you would have uh, on where people can maybe visit, any websites they can visit to find out more, anything that they should be doing personally to make a change, any particular industry bodies, yourselves very much included, that the live music industry should be getting more involved with? Who'd like to jump in there? I can jump in on that one. Um, a few organisations that I really admire who've been doing great work and we've, we've been collaborating a lot over the last 12 months are um, for tour and production managers, the tour production group. And they're um, the tour production group. They're also really open to all of the parts of the industry as well. They've been inviting agents, promoters, artists, suppliers to come and talk about how they can come back and make their tours more sustainable. But they've also had a, a well-being, diversity and inclusion sections. I'm part of the environmental group. And then there's also the Tour Production Alliance, I think it is the TPA, who are like the US equivalent of that. Then there's SEPA, which is Sustainability and Production Alliance, who are doing very practical, like 10 easy wins for, again, it's very production focused. So if you're like in AV, video, etc., they're doing really great work there. Again, these are all kind of coming from within the industry. There's, again, on touring um, around the US, there's the likes of Reverb, who've got some really great resources. Um, they're very much hands-on. They go on the road with tours to help implement their sustainability actions. And then collectively, um, along with Chiara and JB, we've um, been part of the Live Green Working Group, which is, uh, so Live is like an association of associations um, within the mm. UK, but it brings together all of the promoters, agents, tour managers, uh, again, artist representation, venues around many different topics. And they're, they're very active in, in many areas, but the Live Green Group is specifically created to focus on sustainability for the live industry going forwards, which is hugely exciting. It's the first time mm -hmm. it's come to to that level, I believe, with this much momentum. Oh, fantastic. Uh, that makes me very excited to hear that. I'll watch the space with great interest. Uh, excellent news. Chiara, do you have any recommendations? I mean, obviously, there's plenty of resources on JBs and you know, feel free to give them a shout. But uh, anything you'd like to mention? Yeah, I mean, I think for anyone just starting out, definitely on the JB website, we've spent sort of 15 years putting out loads and loads of free practical guides on everything from like touring to production. And we have a free carbon calculator for offices, venues, tours, 
And then obviously other things like certification and consultancy as well. But the other kind of groups, we have co-founded a thing called Vision 2025, which brings together festivals really around sort of a, a common vision and pledge to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Also help to hold a steering group for powerful thinking which has really shifted the way that we think about power outdoor events based on some early research that we did showing that, you know, most generators being used were super inefficient. And we've kind of spent the last 10 years changing that conversation in the festival and outdoor event sector. Um, so again, powerful thinking is that definitely echo the Sustainability and Production Alliance shout out. Music declares emergency. If you're looking to get more involved in campaigning, I sit on the sort of working steering group for that. And yeah, if you're a company or an artist, do sign up to the declaration and look out for a week of action coming up in April. Big shout outs as well to Ecolibrium, who help sort of collect donations uh, linked to audience travel and also from tours to invest them into projects like Community Energy Earth Percent, which is a new initiative, again, getting artists and music companies to pledge to put some money into climate justice and environmental solutions. And yeah, just keep up to date, I think, with what we're all doing. <laughs> there's um, there's a couple of others that I thought of then as well, which are more kind of, um, I guess, more broader events based. So there's the um, Sustainable Event Alliance, who do a lot of work across all different sectors of, of events, but they have quite a lot of resources and also there's an organization called Legacy who've started mm -hmm. a, um, a kind of supplier marketplace recently. So that's, again, a place for um, particularly for suppliers to the event industry to connect on these issues. But they've got some kind of a community as well, an online community where you can get quite a lot of good resources. Oh, and there's the Music Cities as well, which, um, oh, yeah. again, they're doing a lot of good and interesting work. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned Music Cities there. We had uh, Shane Shapiro, the CEO, on a previous episode of uh, Audio Talks with Reverend Moose from Neva over in the States. Mm -hmm. And they had a, a great chat about, you know, helping the music industry, the live music industry survive through the pandemic and beyond. It was absolutely brilliant. Their work is very, very inspiring. And uh, Jonas, how about yourself? You know, obviously, People are definitely going to check out Velo Concerts if they haven't already. Are there any other resources or organizations or things that you would like to give a shout out to that people can visit? For me, being kind of shortly in the business, I mean, for me, it's going to get a bike, a cargo bike and, and produce your own sustainable events. Nice. I would say that would be a, a nice thing to do. I mean, for me, it's about setting sales on, on all fronts so and, and taking yeah. personal initiative. Mm. I could thank all of the musicians who have been on the stage until now, or the organizations we work with. Um, mm. I think it's great to see how it has been received until now, our, our, our Velo concerts. And, and I'm really looking forward for the future to, to have a lot of new and, and, and interesting collaborations. And ideally, I would like Velo concerts to roll out in, in every part of the world, so to say, to let concerts or events roll out on bikes. As a, as a new and, and normal format of, of yes. how to make events. We'll definitely try to help with that. It sounds like a fantastic idea. That would be wonderful. <laughs> fantastic. I look forward to seeing many more Velo concerts all over the world. And um, those are some brilliant resources. Thank you all so much. If it, if it feels overwhelming, like just, just start somewhere and there's loads of us out here who are ready to kind of welcome you and take you on a journey uh, into what needs to happen next. There you go. That's a, a wonderful invitation from Chiara there. Just get in touch with our three brilliant speakers and the organizations they work for and, uh, and discover how you can make a difference. And together, the live music sector can be more sustainable, more compelling and even more amazing. And we can even all be better ancestors into the bargain. Um, so as we are one week away from Earth Day on the day of publication of this podcast, I wonder, could I invite you all to choose a track to add to the Audio Talks title playlist? Chiara. Uh, so I think I'm going to go for New Cannonball Blues by TV on the radio, uh, which I choose quite a lot, A, because TV on the radio are one of my favourite bands, um, but also because I love the theme of the song. It's kind of this call to action to 
to step over our individual excuses and a, a reminder that our future and our culture aren't set in stone and kind of this this massive invocation of how our art and our voices together can break through that autopilot that we're on to, to make something much better. Great choice, Kira. Thank you very much. And Claire, how about your good self? What song would you like to add to our playlist? I'm going to go for Energy by Sampa the Great. And she is um, a Zambian-born Australian rapper, songwriter. And uh, the reason for that is because I guess it's like an underlying current of most of the things that I've spoken about today. Uh, the power and necessity of feminine energy and the fact that it has been kind of held down and oppressed in shame for so many centuries, but actually it's emerging in its almighty beauty to wash over us and save the world. <laughs> so that's why I've chosen Energy by Sampa the Great. Yes, not a moment too soon, I would agree. And uh, over to your good self, Jonas. What track are you adding to our playlist? I took a track from uh, Stephen Wilson, Pariah. Um, I, I'm, I really love Stephen Wilson. I, and, and Oh, yeah. Basically, it was I think it was the last concert I attained. Actually, it was the last concert before the pandemic. And it stayed very much in my playlist, his, his music. And the song, it, it's, it's also about depression. And, and for me... This is also one of the, the huge problems nowadays to, to, mm -hmm. to fight people in depression. I myself had a, a mother who, who actually suffered from that. And, and that's also what I would like also to, to bring out with Velo concerts, the positive spirit in the society and that we gather and celebrate music together. So, so that's also for, for something I would like to fight for really to, to spread out happiness. Absolutely. Spread happiness is as good a manifesto as I have heard in my entire life. I think those are words to live by. Thank you, Jonas. Absolutely. It's the best. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I'm excited. I'm more excited than I've, I've been in a while about the live music industry. There's so many great resources, so many great people, you know, and organizations, yourselves very much included, that are ready to help people get on board to be better ancestors and to make the scene and live music even more amazing than it is already. So thank you all very much for joining us on Audio Talks presented by Harmon. And my own choice for the playlist is Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology by Marvin Gaye. Thank you very much to Chiara Badiali. Thank you all for a brilliant chat. Wonderful. Thank you to Claire O'Neill. Absolute pleasure. Wonderful. And thank you to Jonas Skelbo. Thank you very much. Awesome. That was such a good chat. So listeners, I hope you agree. I hope you're going to get inspired and go out and get involved and check out some of the links in the show notes and say hi to Chiara, Claire and Jonas online. Don't forget to subscribe, comment, share and generally get involved. We'll be back soon for some more fascinating audio talks. See you next time. <laughs>